The April WASDE followed closely on the heels of the 2022 Perspective Planting Report, shining some light on the start of an uncertain season. What's to glean from USDA's last old crop report? That's today on Field Posts. DTN Progressive Farmer podcast that dives deeper into the most important trends in agriculture to explore the business's cutting edge. I'm your host, Sarah Mock. The April WASD dropped Friday, April 8th, with USDA wrapping up its look at the 2021 crop as it turns its attention to the 2022 season. DTN's Todd Holtman joins us to unpack the latest stock estimates for major grains, including some surprising adjustments on soybeans due to changes in China and the increasing role India might play in global wheat. We'll also check in on prospective planting and how that might impact the year ahead. We'll discuss the drought in Brazil and its long-term implications, hear an update on the effects of the war in Ukraine, and break down the latest on crush and ethanol demand, feed, inflation, and supply chains right after this word from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by MyDTN. In today's environment, it's essential more than ever to get the most current and accurate information to help save your valuable resources and continue to be profitable. Get access to all the information you need to deal with this change from DTN. As the leading independent, trusted source of actionable insights and market information, MyDTN gives you accurate weather forecasts, the most extensive database of grain bids, and the most timely news and analysis from our award-winning news team. These features and more are available 24-7 via desktop, laptop, and any mobile device to be with you on the go. Learn more at MyDTN.com and start a free 14-day trial. Now, back to the show. DTN lead analyst Todd Holtman joins us today to discuss the April world supply and demand estimates. Todd, talk to us a little bit about your expectations going into this report. Yeah, normally this report is a lot about South American crop estimates, and that's true again this year, especially since we've had drought issues in both Brazil and Argentina. So that was at the top of the attention. And of course, we have the whole Ukraine conflict still in the background, not letting up at all. And that remains a big concern for markets. So it was always going to be curious to see if USDA says any more about that issue. And then give us a top line readout of what came out of this report in terms of stocks and what was the market reaction. Didn't have a lot of time to react before the weekend, but talk to us a little bit about what happened. Yeah. So in corn stocks, it's very easy. USDA kept that unchanged at 1.44 billion bushels. They did change two items on there, but overall it kept it very simple on the corn estimate for the U.S. balance sheet. For soybeans, there was a 25 million bushel reduction in the ending stocks estimate there. We're now down to 260 million bushels for USDA's ending stocks estimate, and that was largely through an adjustment of increased exports for soybeans. And then on U.S. wheat, it actually went higher than expected. The new ending stocks up 25 million bushels to 678 million bushels, and that was the result of a lower export estimate and a slight reduction in the feed demand estimate. 
even though the trade was looking for roughly unchanged ending wheat stocks, I don't think anyone was particularly shocked. And in fact, really the market ignored the slightly bearish adjustment there by the end of the day. Let's start with soybeans this week. Talk to us a little bit about those export figures and what is happening there in terms of what's tracking demand here. Yeah, if we look at total sales and shipments of soybeans, they got within 30 million bushels of USDA's export estimate already. And we still have 22 or 21 weeks left in the season. So obviously the soybean sales pace has been very, going very good. The, ex, the actual exports are dragging a little bit, but the sales pace is keeping up quite well. And of course, since there's been drought in Brazil, we've had a lot more attention for new crop soybean sales. Those are up uh, a little more than 50% from where they were a year ago already. I think we're about 311 million bushels in new crop sales. But also uh, a bit of a surprise here is that even the old crops of soybeans have picked up recently for us. And uh, I think that's still largely due to the fact that we're going to have lower supplies in Brazil. I think China's going to run out of those lower supplies from Brazil earlier than they normally do. Because when we look at the FOB pricing on the board, we see that U.S. prices are pretty significantly cheaper than Brazil when you get to the month of July. Typically, that's a pretty favorable export situation for the U.S. and suggests that China will be coming to us earlier than they normally do. I want to talk a little bit more about Brazil and South America in general. We talked to John Branick last week about kind of the weather situation there. From your perspective on the market side, is weather still the main kind of factor driving markets in South America right now? Or are there other factors that are altering the certainty of the crop there? Yes. In the big picture, Ukraine still dominates the situation. But in terms of South America, yes, weather's still the dominant factor there plays a part. Even though in Argentina, we're getting a little late into the season. Most of that crop is getting mature already for their corn and beans. At some point, even though the forecast stays, it's hard to think that it'll get much worse uh, than it already is. The crop that's really in play is the second corn crop in Brazil, just recently planted. And it actually had a good start with favorable rains during the planting time. But now we're starting to see, it looks like a, a drier and drier forecast each week that passes for central Brazil where a big part of that second corn crop is. And it looks like the rainy season may soon be over, maybe roughly two weeks earlier than normal, our meteorologist is telling us. So we expect some trouble and stress for that second corn crop here as we move farther into the season. Yeah, I want to circle back around on some of those issues, but let me ask um, about other demand for soybeans. Are you tra- uh, seeing anything interesting happening on the crush side or some of those other markets for soybeans? Yeah, to me, that's been the real impressive part of the demand for soybeans this year. The fact that crush values for both meal and bean oil continue to participate at a very aggressive pace. And when you get that strength of demand for both soy products, which is somewhat rare in history, because meal has typically carried the load, but now we're seeing strong demand for both products, it continues to keep those crush values historically high in relation to the cost of soybean, that crush demand still has a very bright bullish outlook. And I just don't see any uh, slowing down or weakening of that crush incentive yet. And that leads right into a question about 
basis. Talk to us a little bit about you. Traditionally, this part of the spring is the best time of year for basis. But we also checked in last month on this being such an odd time for prices that markets are reacting with some kind of unprecedented financial yes. strategies. Talk to us a little bit about how that situation has progressed. Yes, this will apply to both corn and soybeans. We're seeing the same thing and also to another extent wheat. And that is when Russia launched their invasion of Ukraine in late February. Those May contracts of all three crops went so extremely high. There was a, a very strong buying panic from the speculative side of the market. I think there was also a mad scramble from end users legitimately trying to secure and also a bit panicked just by the news of the war. And by the time we got to early March, we saw huge premiums in the price of May corn, for example, over the price of the July contract. But that's also true in soybeans and it's also true in the wheat contracts. So I, I was very concerned at that time how the exchanges would hold up. It was a very tenuous time. Those prices had moved very quickly. Sometimes it's hard to keep up with margin calls when the market is moving that fast. And obviously, they're making moves. moves. So it, it was a very, I think, fragile time for the entire system in early March. But thankfully, that sense of panic worked itself out. It peaked in roughly early March, somewhere in that first week of March for all three crops. And that spread differential has come back down dramatically. One of the reasons getting back to basis now that really messed up the basis as far as commercials often set their bids off of the front contract. But when that May contract went so high compared to everything else, it put the commercials in a bind because it didn't really match their supply demand situation. And they just could not afford to keep their bids tied to a May contract that was going higher than everything else. So they had to shift, and the, the way they did it is they shift to the July or the September contracts to start pricing their cash grain off of, which is understandable. Those also were higher, but not to the crazy extent that the May contract was. So now we have a, a basis situation in, if you look at corn, maybe, I don't know, one-fourth or one-third are still tied to May contracts, but the bulk of commercials are pricing off the July now. So we have a, a hybrid situation when we look at the cash grain prices across the country. So I just encourage people, I, I think for the time being, you're going to be less confused if you just look at the flat cash corn or cash soybean prices. It's, it's going to make more sense to you. The basis is a pretty confusing in this situation. Let's just talk about Russia and Ukraine in this report. The last couple of reports were also during the conflict, but USDA is historically very backwards looking. So this maybe was the first report where there was USDA had real time to make some estimates about what is happening there. So what yeah. what adjustments did they make? Yeah, I think that's fair to say, Sarah, that you're right on with that, that I think they did have a little more time to consider what's happening. And of course, we all want to know how much corn and wheat and everything Ukraine is going to produce in 2022. But that's not the focus of this report because we're still stuck in the old crop season. So when we get together for the May 12th report, we'll see what USDA says about their projections uh, for the season ahead, which will be interesting given everything going on. So get, understanding that, we did see USDA reduce the corn estimate once again. So for a second month in a the row, they reduced Ukraine's corn estimate. This time they brought it down from 27.5 million metric tons down to 23 million metric tons, obviously recognizing the difficulty of estimating corn 
there. Of course, Russia is not a big player in corn. But so let me transition to the wheat side also, since we're on the Ukraine-Russian topic. And there we just saw slight changes. We saw USDA reduce Ukraine's wheat export estimate by 1 million metric tons from 20 to 19. But they also increased the export estimate from Russia by 1 million metric tons. So that was a wash overall. In the real world, obviously, the Black Sea is closed for all commercial trade at this point. Ukraine is trying to get some wheat out to the western end of the country, but it's difficult. Their infrastructure really wasn't made to do that. The, they, they do have some rail available, but they have a problem with their rail system does not match Europe's rail system at the border. So that's difficult. And of course, they're trucking and I've even heard putting on wagons, whatever grain they can do to move west out of the country. But it's obviously not near as ideal as if they could go out the Black Sea like they normally do. So that continues to be a very difficult thing. And I think it probably will be difficult all through the year for the new crop as well, which is why I just I don't have high expectations of Ukraine being able to participate very well in new crop exports this year. Because of the wheat situation in Ukraine and Russia and the potential that is going to be a significantly impacted region, um, we are starting to look at other countries who are supplying or, or using significant amounts of wheat. Talk to us a little bit about USDA's updates to India in this report. Oh, yes. USDA increased the domestic demand estimate for India by 4.4 million metric tons. And that caused the estimate of world ending stocks of wheat to fall by 3 million metric tons. So anyway, that drop was a bigger drop than the market was expected. We didn't really expect India to be a feature uh, in this month's uh, report, but USDA did have that uh, kind of bullish demand estimate. The other reason that India is more interesting than usual at this time is because it's being mentioned as a possible supplier to help make up for Ukraine's loss this year. And USDA kept India's export estimate total at 8.5 million metric tons. That wasn't changed in this report, but that's also one of those things we'll be looking at in the May 12th report when we get new crop uh, estimates also as well. Quick follow-up on that, because I think India is particularly interesting because India is actually a very large producer of wheat we don't, yes. that we don't talk about a lot because they consume so much of it within yes. their country. Seems like they have been building up some infrastructure in recent years to become a more significant exporter. I don't know. I'm curious for your perspective as an analyst. How do you watch a country like that as they kind of <laughs> get ready to start doing something that they've never really done before? Yeah, for the most part, to be honest, we ignore them because their real primary goal has been to be self-sufficient, as you say. And of course, they have a huge population to feed and a huge poor population where wheat supplies are really important as far as providing food to their people. And of course, any good government knows if you have a large poor population, uh, you better have food on hand or you're not going to be in government very long. I mean, it, it's it's just that important to the stability and peace of a people. So for the most part, they've only exported uh, at rare times when they had a little bit extra here and there. But of course, they would never do anything to threaten their own domestic security. And that mindset is still going to be true in this situation. But as you say, it does look like they have some surplus available to contribute. And of course, with wheat prices as high as it, it you, they can profit from being a good neighbor. <laughs> 
Taking a little bit of a broader view on corn outside of just Russia and Ukraine, talk a little bit about ethanol and feed use and updates on that side for coming out of this report. Yeah, well, ethanol production really has been running at very good pace this season. It's up 10% from a year ago at this time. And we did see USDA acknowledge that with a 25 million bushel increase in their estimate of uh, how much corn will be used for ethanol. So that demand estimate's up to 5.375 billion bushels now. On the uh, other hand, when it came to feed demand, USDA reduced the feed demand estimate by 25 million bushels. And I think that's probably a nod to concerns about bird flu, perhaps. But we also have lower hog inventory and lower production pace for hogs this year. So it was an offset. And that's what helped keep the ending corn stocks unchanged in this report. And I want to double back a little bit. You talked a bit about China and soybean demand and how that relates to the crop in South America right now. And you talked a little bit about the South American corn crop that is currently ongoing. Any other updates on trade and and what they might be looking at on the corn side? Yeah, uh, a recent concern that's come out from China lately is that they have rising cases of COVID in the country and they've locked down Shanghai, which is supposedly 26 million people. And they, I think the underlying problem, it sounds like from health exports, is that China has relied on a vaccine that's not as good as the vaccines we have here in the U.S. And so they're still having more problem containing the spread of the coronavirus and the different variants that pop up than we do. And of course, their number one go-to method has been just to lock down whatever place reports a case or rising cases. And I think that that strategy worked well for them early, but as uh, time goes on, it seems like it's not working well for them now. They probably don't have the resistance and the protection that we have here in the U.S. or in the West build up. So they seem a little more vulnerable to another outbreak uh, of the flu, and that's added some concern. And we have seen a pullback somewhat in China's soybean and soybean meal prices, but overall, they're still at very high levels. They, they're still very well supported. And as, as far as I can tell, China still has a very strong appetite for soybeans. So continue to watch it closely. But most of these coronavirus scares have been short-term in nature as far as the market's concerned. And I really expect this one probably will be too. Well, I should also mention that USDA lowered China's import estimate of corn and soybeans by 3 million metric tons each. And in reading through the notes, I did not see a particular comment from USDA about why they did uh, that. But I have to wonder if it had anything to do with the coronavirus cases that we've been hearing about. And if that's true, I'm a little skeptical that it will actually translate to lower demand because whether people are locked up or not, they still have to eat. And as far as I can tell from looking at the prices of corn and soybeans within China, their demand situation still remains quite strong, as far as I can tell. So I'm a little skeptical about China, USDA's lower estimates for that. But again, time will prove out which one of us is right. Before we talk about some bigger picture stuff, I want to talk a little bit about wheat. You've touched on it a bunch already. We've heard about the stocks update. We talked a little about Russia and Ukraine and how that is affecting things. But it seems like weather is maybe still the main driver of kind of wheat optimism or pessimism here in the U.S. So where does that leave us in terms of where we are here in April? Yeah, so where it's hard to anticipate much wheat coming out of Ukraine this year, the world is going to be looking for replacements. 
and our contribution from North America could be suspect. And our first wheat crop that we're looking at is the hard red winter crop. We just had a crop rating a week ago, and uh, they said 30% good to excellent. That'll get updated again on Monday afternoon, but that was the lowest spring start we've seen for the hard red winter wheat crop in at least two decades, and maybe on record. So obviously we've got very dry situation, and especially around that Texas panhandle, western Kansas area, uh, really have some entrenched drought there, and we've had wildfires breaking out this weekend, and there's a wildfire threat still through much of that southwestern plain area. So it's uh, very tough to expect much improvement in that drought situation between now and harvest time. We're probably looking at a reduced wheat crop again from the U.S. this year. And then later in the season, we're going to be looking at spring wheat in the northwestern plains, and that's also a drought concern, which we'll be dealing with this summer and we'll have to see how that develops. But so far, Montana especially is still extremely dry and it looks like a very tough start for a new wheat crop. And I'm curious how, obviously, markets are responding to that uncertainty. Talk a little bit about how markets are shifting and uh, changes in demand. A lot of fluctuations on the price side for wheat. Oh, yeah. On Kansas City wheat, just as an example, the May contract, shortly after the invasion, we hit a high of twelve ninety nine and a half, so just shy of $13 on May Kansas City wheat. That peaked on March 7. And then it wasn't long. Wheat started correcting back fairly sharply and came back to roughly the $10 level not too long ago. But now it appears to have found support at $10. And of course, the situation in Ukraine's not getting any better, and the U.S. still has the drought threat that I was talking about. So uh, we're rallying up once again. We rallied on this report, and uh, so far it still has a very strong bullish bias in wheat. That gets us to, I think, maybe today, and we can start looking, I think, to the year ahead, which a lot of people are doing as the 2022 crop starts to go in the ground. We got the prospective planting report 10 days ago from USDA. What did you see in that report? Any surprises? Did any kind of shocks to the market there? Yeah, but there were, it was a bit of a surprise. Now, I was anticipating 89 to 90 million on corn acres. So that one actually turned about to be fairly close. Some were looking a little higher, 92 or higher. And that did not show up in the planning intention survey. I think the surprise for almost all of us analysts uh, universally was seeing USDA estimate 91 million acres of soybeans. Most of us were under 90 million, I think, on the soybean estimate. Obviously, I think the word is getting out for one thing, that the excitement and the bullishness of renewable diesel and what that means to soybean oil prices and how that contributes to the crush that we were talking about earlier. So I think that's a, a big part of it. And then, of course, the fertilizer situation. You can't blame guys for trying to avoid corn this year with fertilizer as expensive. Uh, as it is. So those two things, I think, played into that. Now, again, is that what's actually going to be planted? T time will prove that out. But uh, I think we have to be careful not to just put those planning intention survey estimates in stone and think that we know now what the planning is going to be, because we really don't. And I'm curious what you're going to be watching with that big asterisk over yeah. the next month or so, not just because... Uh, intentions are not necessarily what people are going to plant, but also because weather and delayed planting or flooding or drought or all those things can seriously affect whether or not things go in the ground at all, let alone how they uh, emerge. So what will you be watching most closely between now and the May report? 
I think it, a lot of it is going to come down to weather, of course. And it looks like April is hostile to planting so far. It's at least in the northern half of the Corn Belt. We still have some pretty cold temperatures. We have talk of a blizzard coming through <laughs> this week. Now that's Montana, North Dakota, but there'll be some spillover. But that's also, we haven't really seen the end of the snow in the forecast. So that'll keep some planters in the sheds for a while, at least in the northern areas, definitely. And then, of course, that drought situation that we have in the western Corn Belt is going to be a concern. Is it going to spread farther east or not? All that is going to play into it. But once we get to, I think, early May, I think we'll see a much more friendly environment to get planning going and get things done. So I, I don't see it as a big hurdle. I think this is always a good time to take a little bit of a step back and look ahead to the 2022 crop season and you know what you are expecting. Does this feel like a less uncertain April than the last couple of Aprils? Are you feeling more confident about this one than maybe some of the recent past? My first thought goes back to if we look at April two years ago, we were really getting hit by the pandemic panic at that moment. And things were looking extremely gloomy that April two years ago. And then last year was actually a, a little milder, and we actually did have uh, a lot of guys get out and start planning early. And things were, I think, looking a little better at that time as far as nothing too crazy happening at the moment. But this one with President Putin in Ukraine and Russia being such an important part of the world as far as grain production goes, and I think President Putin continues to prove that he's gone beyond the level of what you would expect from maybe a rational actor in his position. And that's what makes it so tough as an analyst. Anytime highly improbable events are on the table and you can't discount them, it makes it very tough to make decisions about the future moving forward. And he's really paralyzed things. I think right now for grain markets, because if he did something to escalate that conflict even further, or maybe even go outside it, then we just can't make any reasonable predictions at that point. And so as long as that's a viable option, it's very hard for any of us. We're acting on faith that things are going to work out and we're going to get through this somehow. But it's certainly not a confident situation we're in. I think the other thing I was thinking about recently was we talked a lot about when the Trump administration was first getting involved with trade disputes. I think there was a lot of pointing to the U.S. is going to lose these markets to Brazil, specifically in South America more broadly. And there was all this investment in those areas and improving infrastructure and making sure that Brazil were going to be this huge source for China and that the U.S. was going to inevitably lose over the long term. Um, it's been five years since, largely since those predictions were first made. I'm curious, thoughts, feelings in there of are, yeah. Do you still have an existential fear of lost markets to South America? I'll put it this way. 2017 was a real key change in the crossroads, and, to, and it followed quickly by the 2018 point that you're mentioning with the trade tariff. And, and the change in crossroads that happened was before that time, the U.S. and Brazil used to basically split the business of supplying China soybeans. And uh, so it was a 50-50 deal roughly up to that point. After 2017, we reached our planting acreage ability and Brazil kept expanding. 
So that's where you look back and there's really a divergence between Brazil's export path and our export path. And then, of course, the whole trade tariff situation really added to that and gave China even more incentive to try to avoid our markets as much as they could and rely on Brazil more. And that had the market of effect of even inflating South American prices even more, which fueled the expansion even more. There's really been a separation in the two demand trends of the two countries concerning soybeans to China since that time. This is really, uh, Brazil's drought this year is really quite a rare event. Usually their rainy season carries them through. If you go back to 1985, this is only the fourth time where the soybean yield in Brazil has dropped by more than 10% from the previous year. So they've had a long string of good crops for the most part, but this is one of the rare ones. And the good news for us is anytime they suffer a weather hit, we tend to really capitalize big time on that lost business because we are the main supplier outside of Brazil. Interesting. That always seems like a good long-term trend to keep an eye on that. I feel like, like yeah. it tends to slip off the radar, but I want to do a last couple of check-ins on other things we've talked about recently. Inflation seems like a big one. You touched on fertilizer, but talk to us. Are you seeing other ways that inflation or we talk about inflation and supply chain issues, I think kind of hand in hand. Where are we on that? Any updates? Yeah. Well, the war in Ukraine obviously has not made things better. It's made it worse. And in particular, energy prices continues to be a real key in both topics, both as far as the consumer price index goes and input costs in general for farming, and also a real key for the shipping transportation nightmares. And the shipping logistics were actually starting to show improvement up until Russia attacked Ukraine again. And now the costs of shipping are going back up again. So unfortunately, this whole conflict has put just doubled down the pressures on the U.S. and the West in, in those two items that we've been struggling with. And again, the Federal Reserve will raise interest rates and maybe they'll go up to 2 or 3% this year, which is all fine and good, but it's not really going to be the solution to this particular problem. We we need an environment where production can thrive again so we can get rid of the, the knots that we have in the transportation logistics and we can get the fuel prices back down to a more reasonable level. I want to touch on that too, because I think one of the the odd things that even I think your average consumer w will have picked up on at this point is it's not, uh, fuel prices are certainly up, but there just seems to be a lot of fluctuation happening. Talk a little bit about how that kind of uncertainty is playing into agricultural markets at the moment, maybe not just in, in energy, but across the other commodity markets outside of agriculture as well. Yeah, well, here's another real kind of, to me, interesting feature about the oil market. And that is, when you look at the world oil market, it really sinks or swims on very razor margins. So when we have oil prices at $100 a barrel and rising, it does not take a big change in the supply situation to make that happen. Basically, if oil, world oil production falls short of demand by about 1%, we start hitting those big increases in the oil prices. Whereas if you start having a situation where oil production can cover demand by 1% or 2%, it comes back down rapidly and quickly. 
So it's a very sensitive, touchy market to changes and these supply disruptions that happen. And oftentimes, I mean, the good news is oftentimes the solution is possible and doable. In 2008, we had this situation. And of course, that's when all of a sudden the idea that we should make corn into ethanol became very popular and we passed those mandates. And once we hit that peak and got, <clears throat> excuse me, a little more production than demand, it brought the prices back down quickly. That is possible again, but I think it's really going to take a calming down of the whole tensions with Russia. You can read Todd's full analysis and up-to-the-minute reporting on all things ag markets at DTNPF.com or in the monthly DTN Progressive Farmer magazine. This episode of Field Post was brought to you by the team at DTN Progressive Farmer, with special thanks to Todd Holtman. This episode was produced and edited by me, Sarah Mock, with support by Greg Hillier and Kylie Swanson. And a big thanks to all of you for listening. If you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And until then, remember, the future of farming is here. This episode of Field Post is brought to you by DTN Ag Weather Station. Are you looking to get more accurate, hyper-local weather information? By gathering weather and agronomic data directly from your own fields, DTN Ag Weather Station supports you when making targeted decisions around expensive or high-risk activities like chemical applications and irrigation. DTN's Ag Weather Station can be purchased for as low as $9 a month depending on your current customer status with DTN. If you're looking to increase your weather accuracy while saving time, please visit DTN.com.